Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, we've got my panel. We've got businessman and former MEP, Ben Habib, economist at The Article and the founder of the Contrarian Prize, Ali Mirage, and Jeevan Sander, economist at King's College London. And you know the drill by now on Jubes & Co. It's not just about us here and our thoughts, no. It's about you at home as well. What is on your mind tonight? You can get in touch with me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at... GB News. I had my first email tonight already, by the way, from Adrian. He says, thank you, GB News, for not reading out any of my emails on any show ever on GB News. Adrian, there you go. You got your wish. I've read it out. You go on to say you're not going to email us anymore because we don't read them. Well, there you go. We do. So I look forward to your next email. Uh, anyway, don't forget, if you haven't already, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. We've got an app. We're on the radio, DAB+. It's nice and sunny out there. So if you're contemplating going out, take us with you. We're everywhere. Right, let's get into our top story, shall we? The local elections are done. You'll know by now that the um, Tories had a bit of a kicking. And guess what? It led me to a bit of a rant. There's something I need to get off my chest because in the news headlines earlier on today, all over the place, you've seen Keir Starmer celebrating his wins, hasn't he? He looks very happy, probably because of that Tory kicking. Much of it uh, has been blamed on the infamous Partygate. But how very convenient, then, that only now that the elections are done, we today discover that the leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer, is now also under criminal investigation for so-called Beergate. Durham Police, headed, of course, by a police and crime commissioner who is, you guessed it, Labour, have said that this decision comes after substantial new information came to light. And the reason that they didn't share this before is because they were waiting for the pre-election period to pass. As I said, convenience. You see... I agree that the fact a leader is under criminal investigation could indeed influence an election outcome. But it is surely for that very reason that this information and anything else, quite frankly, to do with Partygate should have been released during the election period. Because if that is not in the public interest, then I don't know what is. So I'll start by saying that I personally believe in innocent until proven guilty. But someone who clearly doesn't agree with me is the man himself, Sir Keir Starmer, who tweeted the following back in January when Partygate was just a mere investigation. He said this, Honesty and decency matter. After months of denials, the Prime Minister is now under criminal investigations for breaking his own lockdown laws. He needs to do the decent thing and resign. Awkward. Well, Sir Keir, judging you by your own standards, therefore, I can only assume that your resignation letter is indeed on its way. But guess what? I won't hold my breath. What do you think to that? Very quickly, your thoughts on this, Ben? Keir Starmer, be a gay investigation? Well, I think Keir Starmer's missed a trick right from the beginning of this whole beer gate investigation. What he should have done was not continually parry the punches. He should have just taken it on the nose and he should have declared, I will resign 
if the Prime Minister resigns. If I'm found guilty, I will resign if the Prime Minister resigns. And that would have put the spotlight straight back onto Boris Johnson. Instead, he's sought to parry these punches, deny it, claim Angela Rayner wasn't with him. And I think he's got himself into slightly difficult waters as a result of that. He's now put himself in the same camp as Boris Johnson. What he needed to do was claim the, high, the moral high ground right from the start. And I think he's missed a trick. Jeevan? Well, I think he's, he's pretty confident, as well as everyone else in the team, that he won't be fined. They've also had Barish to speak about this beforehand, and they're pretty confident. So I think he's feeling in a good position where he is. More broadly as well, we spoke earlier today about the tweet about Keir Starmer, but that was also about the fact that Boris Johnson at that point had clearly misled the House when he said there were no parties, was unaware of anything that had happened, but of course he was there quite clearly. And that, I think, is where the distinction comes down. As to where the police investigation ends up, I suspect in a week or two weeks, whenever they finish this investigation, it will be cleared. Mm, well, the tweet that I was reading <laughs> out, Ali, he specifically says that because uh, he was under, uh, he being Boris, because Boris was under investigation, therefore he should do the decent thing and resign. So he's in a, in a conundrum now because he's under investigation. That's right, but Michelle, we, we've got to get the terminology right. You said uh, it's beer gate, I'm afraid it's curry gate. And quite a sumptuous curry it was, if you look at what was ordered. Uh, look, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Uh, the very fact that we're having a discussion about various leaders having cake in Tupperware containers or beer or whatever it may be seems quite trivial. However, it does highlight how ridiculous some of these rules were in the first place. And frankly, it has become a, a problem, as Ben has uh, highlighted, because... They've prevaricated. They've sort of deflected attention. Now it's come back to them. Now we find Angela Rayner was there. Now there's a question about did they go back to work or did they not go back to work after downing this, uh, downing this curry. Uh, so it's pretty unedifying. And I just go back to the 1995 Nolan principles for conduct in public life. Integrity, honesty, openness, transparency... I don't think we're getting this from the political class of both sides at the moment. I'll tell you much. what we're getting from both sides uh, at the moment, and that is ridiculousness. I've always found this whole thing ridiculous, but I don't believe in double standards. So if you push for something, you've got to accept it when it comes your way. And Jeevan says that he feels confident uh, right now. I'd feel quite confident as well if the police and uh, crime commissioner that was overall responsible for all this was on my side. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's uh, look at the local elections, shall we? I wonder, did you go out and vote? Did you bother? I've got to make a confession. I actually didn't. Uh, I know I'm getting sharp in intakes of breath here, but I've uh, got to be honest, and I just didn't. Anyway, it was a bad day for the Conservatives, but not as good as it could have been for Labour. The Lib Dems and the Greens had a bit more to celebrate. So, you're lucky, ladies and gentlemen, because joining me, we've got a true expert, our GB News political editor, Darren McCaffrey. Uh, what's been going on, then? What can you tell us about yesterday's results? A real mixed bag, and... and... Sometimes people use the word mixed bag as in, I'm not going to have a specific take. It's very easy to say, well, they did well there and they did well there. But genuinely, that is the overall picture, Michelle, from yesterday. I mean, it's fair to say the Conservative Party did not have a good day. They've lost hundreds of councillors. At every hour, that number of councillors is ratcheting up, essentially, as the votes, particularly from Scotland and Wales, come in. Losing places like Wandsworth, Farnet, more importantly, Westminster. I mean... I mean, the Conservatives to lose Westminster is pretty bad. So, yeah, it has not been good. And it's not just London, Southampton, Cumbria. There are parts of the country where people have decided to turn against the party. In Scotland, it looks like Labour's going to be probably in second place. 
But is this as bad as people have predicted? Is this as bad as even some Conservative MPs have predicted? It is not. I've just seen in the last couple of minutes that actually the Conservative Party have managed to take Harrow from Labour. That's why I say it's a real proper uh, mixed bag. So, in the end, ultimately, does this mean that Boris Johnson's position is less secure or more secure than it was even a matter of days ago? Probably, almost certainly, more secure. There is no sense that Boris Johnson is losing grip of the country. But there is a sense that people are getting increasingly frustrated with the government. As for the Labour Party, again, we heard from Keir Starmer, he said this was a massive turning point. He's right to a degree, it's definitely a turning point. Labour are starting to win back parts of the country that they need to win back. They are doing very well in Scotland, they're consolidating in Wales. But frankly, is this a massive turning point? No. It is not. I mean, Labour are not doing as well as they need to do. If this is a Labour Party that thinks it's going to win the next election based on these council results, that is simply just not they going to happen. They lost Hull. The first time in 11 years they lost... Uh, yeah, weirdly, vote. though, to, but to, to the Lib Dems. Well, I mean, that's why politics is fascinating. Hull voted to leave. Two-thirds of Hull voted to... Yeah, and they've now voted for the most pro-EU party, and that's why... Yeah, but, but this is what I find really interesting. You say that they voted for the Lib Dems, but as I, as I understand it, the turnout was something like 22 23%. That's appalling. So the, I, I think the overall narrative from these elections is just how few people actually bothered to vote yesterday. You were so right in your introduction. I mean, I know anecdotally, lots of my friends who were politically engaged didn't bother to turn out to vote. We're looking at potentially less than 30%. That is really awkward. And it's really awkward and really difficult to then extrapolate a national picture when so few people have voted. But it does matter because it feeds into, obviously, what MPs think and feel at Westminster. So I think... How does it, that uh, compare, by the way, to previous local elections that turn out? It, it's pretty low. So I think when these seats were last fought in 2018, it was 35%. So it's, it, it's definitely done. And maybe that is a plague in all houses. We know that Westminster has been beset by scandals, hasn't it, in the last couple of months. Is this going to dramatically change anything? That's the bottom line. I don't think it is. In the end, Boris Johnson has had a bad night, but not bad enough that he's at risk of potentially facing a vote of no confidence. Keir Starmer's had a good enough night that he can claim he's doing reasonably well, given where the Labour Party were just a match of years ago under Jeremy Corbyn. Is he doing well enough, though, that he can genuinely argue that he's on course to win the next election, that's very difficult well, to say. Well, if he follows his own standards, though, Darren, he won't be there for the next election because <laughs> well, he believes in resigning, doesn't he, if you're just under investigation? And, and I put this to a Labour MP earlier on today, uh, and, and this is really tricky for Keir Starmer. He's just did an interview with the press in which he said that no rules were broken and that he does not think he's going to be fined. But, yeah, you're right, it's frankly not a good look that the Labour Party, who've been arguing for months about what the Prime Minister may or may not have done, uh, that he has now been investigated, potentially facing a fine for what he has done. And that would undermine his authority, his credibility, his persona as a politician of someone of integrity and truth. What I would say, though, just to counterbalance that a little bit, is I think if the Prime Minister had simply been fined for what happened in the Cabinet room about birthday party, I don't think we would be involved talking about Partygate. His critics would argue, and I think there's an element of truth on this, is that what happened in Downing Street was definitely on a different scale. We're talking about not just one, but multiple parties involving people across Downing Street and Whitehall. And that's why I think the Prime Minister ultimately 
whatever happens, is in a much more difficult position. Well, what I'd say, Darren, is that this is um, Durham Curry Gate, Party Gate, Beer Gate, whatever you want to call it, and that is the one that we currently know of. What else is going to come out of the woodwork? But for now, Darren McCaffrey, thank you very much for your insights. Ben Habib, uh, what do you make, then, to all of these local election outcomes? Well, I, I agree with Darren that it's a very mixed bag, but I think there are some signs of danger for the Prime Minister, not, not in the immediate future, but in the composition of the voting. You know, he's lost some very key seats in London. Westminster, as Darren mentioned, Wandsworth, Barnet, West Oxfordshire, Southampton. These are seats which the Tories will need to hold at the next election if they're to win the next election. So there are warning signs right up for the Conservative Party that they need to get their act together. Um, there's sort of disaffection amongst traditional Labour voters for Labour because they didn't win massively in the areas that you would typically expect them to win. And there's disaffection with the Conservative Party and traditional Conservative Party leading areas. But I think the other big threat to the Conservative Party is something that, I, that, 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 that the Labour Party and Liberal Democrats failed to do in 2019, and we all feared that they would do it, but they seem to have been able to get together a bit more in this election. And if they coordinate in a general election the way that they've coordinated in this local election, you could see some fairly significant swings in 2024, and the Conservative Party have to really watch out for that. Jeevan? Yeah, I think the point about tactical voting is entirely correct. I think when you come round to the next general election that will become more of a factor than is apparent today. More broadly, this was a good night for Labour. If we look at what the natural, the national share of seats would be, we think Labour would be the largest party, still short of an overall majority, coming back from, of course, their worst defeat since 1935. So a good night for Labour, but more work definitely has to be done to win the next election. A bad night for the Conservatives, as I think we've all agreed. And also, of course, the largest forward incomes we're about to see this year and then next year, another fall incomes for a probable general election. I'd be very nervous as I was a Conservative. I think one of the problems with the Conservatives is actually that there's no dramatic moment to get rid of the Prime Minister. And actually being stuck with him at the next election is going to be a real kind of you know, noose around their neck in that regard. And also, more broadly, I think there's a good chance, a very good chance, the Prime Minister will sack the Chancellor. Yeah, um, and I do find this extrapolation, because it's been uh, documented a lot, the extrapolation of today's local election results extrapolated up into a general election. But that kind of doesn't wash with me, because what I think, I didn't vote. I know loads of people that didn't vote. Deborah's just written and said she didn't vote. Uh, Jeff just written and said, Michelle, stop criticising the people that didn't vote if you didn't vote yourself. I'm not criticising them. I understand them. I'm one of them. And therefore, it's because so many people didn't vote, Ali, that I don't think you can accurately extrapolate up anywhere. I actually agree with you completely on that. I, I don't buy this thing that it would be 35% uh, share of the vote to Labour just based on what we had uh, versus uh, the Tories on 30%. I think it's far too early to tell. I think what you basically uh, are witnessing here is that Labour has not sealed the deal with the electorate. People are upset with the Conservative Party. They've done very badly in London. They're expected to do anyway. But the Liberal Democrats have sort of rehabilitated themselves, which is um, a good thing for them. And if I was someone uh, like a Dominic Raab and Isha and Walton with an under 3,000 majority over the Lib Dems, I wouldn't be sleeping easy in my bed tonight. So, well, if, if I may, I think you actually both raised, like, really good points about not being able to extrapolate. I think the thing is that it's, like, another data point that's consistent with the polling. But I would agree that, actually... A low but I don't ever... Out. I never agree with the polling anyway, but that's a whole different yeah. story. Uh, uh, also, as well, of course, voting, Northern Ireland. All 90 seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly are being contested, with counting expected to go on until tomorrow. It's predicted that Sinn Féin could become the largest party in the Assembly. 
GB News presenter and former First Minister of Northern Ireland, Arlene Foster, joins us now. Good evening to you. Uh, Arlene, some Hi. political commentators are calling this the most important election in a generation. Would you agree with that? Well, Michelle, uh, first of all, I used to call every election a very important election, so there is an element of that. But I do understand why people are saying that, because it looks uh, very likely that Sinn Féin will be the largest party. I don't think we should forget, though, that in the last election in 2017, that Sinn Féin was only 0.2% behind the DUP in that election. So it's not a huge length. But I have to say they've held on very strongly to their seats. The DUP will lose a few seats, I think, and so they will come in second. But certainly there's not the meltdown that people were predicting. Um, and I think that's important to recognise. The polling were, was saying that the DUP would come in about 18%. I think they'll probably more likely be about 24%. Um, the big story is the Alliance Party and the TUV. Now, the Alliance Party is a sort of centrist party that doesn't take a constitutional position on Northern Ireland. They have gained uh, quite heavily in terms of voting. And the TUV, who Ben will know very well, because Jim Allister is the leader of that party, uh, they will make gains, um, maybe not as many gains as they thought they were going to get, but I have to say they've increased their percentage share of the vote considerably. And that should send a very clear message to the government in relation to the Northern Ireland Protocol. And if Sinn Féin did become, Aline, the largest party in the Assembly, in your mind, what would that mean for the people of Northern Ireland? Well, Michelle, we have a different system of devolution here in Northern Ireland than in Scotland and Wales. We have what's called mandatory coalition. Uh, so it's not just one party taking over the government. It's all of the parties, bizarrely, taking over the government because that's what power sharing is all about. So in terms of the First Minister's office, the First Minister and the Deputy First Minister have exactly the same powers. But I suppose from a symbolic point of view, they will be the largest party. And that, of course, will allow them to argue that there should be a border poll. Of course, there's no evidence uh, that uh, people would vote for a border poll, because if you actually take all of the unionist parties together, they're still ahead of the nationalist parties. And of course, there's a lot of people that vote for the Alliance Party who, in a border poll, would vote to retain the union as well. Fascinating stuff, Aline Foster. Thank you very much for your insight. Ben Habib, talking there about the Northern uh, Ireland Protocol, how much uh, of a part in, in the outcome or the potential outcome, looking very likely, uh, of Sinn Féin being the largest party, do you think that the whole Brexit Northern Ireland Protocol played a part in? Uh, well, the protocol was absolutely critical in these elections. And because the government didn't get behind unionists in Northern Ireland, because the government failed to invoke Article 16, it didn't pass any legislation to neuter the protocol, the unionist parties had no option but to fight this election on opposition to the protocol, virtually ignoring everything else. It had to be a constitutional election for the unionist parties. And that gave Sinn Féin open run to talk about everything else. Even though, as Arlene mentioned, they have mandatory coalition in, um, in Northern Ireland, which basically means every single party that gets elected has representation in government, which means they can't do anything to address the cost of living crisis or inflation. It gave Sinn Féin the ability to bang that sort of virtue signaling drum, while Sir Geoffrey, Jim, uh, and to a much less extent, Doug Beattie were stuck in the mud on the protocol. And if Sinn Féin become the biggest party, which the polls seem to indicate, and when I entered this room, I think they had 14 out of the 19 seats declared. If Sinn Féin go on to become the biggest party, I would not underestimate their drive towards a border poll. 
and it is something that we should really have never have allowed. The control of that was in our government. It had to get behind unionism before these elections. They've sat on their hands. Lord Frost sat on his hands. Having concluded that Article 16 needed to be invoked, he actually did absolutely nothing about it. Liz Truss has done exactly the same thing. Brandon Lewis, the night before the elections, scotched any hope that legislation, which they had previously promised, would come forward in the new parliament, uh, neutering aspects of the protocol, absolutely putting people in Northern Ireland on tenterhooks. Now, this is, if Sinn Féin win, it's a catastrophe, I think, for unionism, and we will be facing uh, 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 calls for a border poll. And it is high time Westminster, and the government in particular, got behind the Union of the United Kingdom, which, remember, only exists as a result of Northern Ireland and Great Britain being in union. If we lose Northern Ireland, we lose the United Kingdom, we become Great Britain, and we lose the salt of St. Patrick in the Union Jack. And for those of us who were brought up under the Union Jack, that matters a lot. So it's high time this government took notice of what's going on in Northern Ireland. I mean, we say it's high time, but some people, I mean, and this is the points that everyone's alluding to, it was high time quite some time It ago. was. It and that was, opportunity, yeah. Jeevan, that seems to have been forgotten, missed, overlooked, deprioritised for whatever reason. Your thoughts on it all? Well, yes, certainly Boris Johnson told the DUP that there would never be a border in the Irish Sea, and he immediately junked that, and unfortunately the DUP fell for that. That's led to some of the problems we have today. I think it's right to say that Sinn Féin winning is a symbolic moment, but actually the threat to the union, to me, seems to be somewhat overstated. We know Sinn Féin in this election, as has been mentioned, prioritised the cost of living. We also saw the alliance increase. We're seeing an increase in those who aren't aligned to either side of the sectarian divide. So actually, this looks like a, a pretty traditional election in the sense of people in Northern Ireland aren't doing well economically in the opposition here. Sinn Féin has capitalised upon that. They have transformed themselves as a political party. Mm. Ali, your thoughts? Well, I think, I think Ben makes a point about the DUP focusing almost exclusively around the, uh, the, the, the Northern Ireland uh, border issue. Um, and I think that that was a strategic mistake because it's not in their gift to do anything about it, quite frankly. The, the reason why Theresa May never agreed to this was because she needed their support when she was in government. Johnson came in with an 80-seat majority and, as Jeevan says, reneged on the whole thing completely. Now, there's been a lot of chest-thumping from the government about, in the Queen's speech, they would bring out things and uh, uh, not invoke Article 16, but unilaterally sort of deal with this issue about these, uh, this border in the Irish Sea. But the fact of the matter is, when they signed this agreement in 2019, it was always obvious that the EU wanted to protect the integrity of the single market. You cannot have a border... If there's going to be no border between Northern Ireland and, 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 and Republic of Ireland, it has to be in the, in, in the sea. It has to be in the Irish Sea. That, that whole issue has never been resolved. It's not going to be resolved. Uh, Ali, it's hugely resolvable. And oh, with technology, uh, we heard that... No, 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 no. Let's just get one thing utterly straight. Great Britain is not instituting any checks at the moment on goods coming from Northern Ireland. In other words, we have a completely open border with the EU facing westwards at the moment. And that is precisely what the United Kingdom would have done if the customs border had gone on the island of Ireland. There would have been no customs posts, no checks yeah, on us. The EU wants customs no, posts. But the EU can put customs posts, if it wants, in Ireland. The IRA... It's a de facto border. No, that's the whole no, issue. no, but that's not... No. It's very... Emotive. It's there... No. 
Ali, you're wrong. You're utterly wrong. I'm sorry. You are utterly wrong. There is no basis on which... Why did this negotiation go on for years, if I'm wrong? Because, on this very because our government lacks the political will and courage to stand behind the Union of the United Kingdom, to have a vision for the Union of the United Kingdom, and to hold the EU to account. They allowed Leo Varadkar and supporters of Leo Varadkar to weaponize the border issue, to threaten violence, and we gave in to the violence. The trade across that border is 5 billion euros a year. The trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland is 25 billion euros a year. The notion that you should choose to put a border down the Irish Sea, which equally breaches the Belfast Agreement, versus putting a, a customs border, and remember there's already a border there that separates two currencies, two VAT regimes, two corporation tax uh, regimes and so on. The, the notion that putting a border on the island of Ireland would be any more divisive for the Belfast Agreement than putting one down the IRC is utterly wrong. And we should have forced the issue. The UK is not divisive to the agreement. It's we, divisive to the UK. To putting it down the IRC. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why our exactly. government should... That's why the DUP is upset about and, and what, that's, that's why the, our about. government should never have done it. It is political weakness. Which modern country I, can you think of, Ali, in the world ben, that I has agree. voluntarily I, partitioned I, I itself? I agree with you. However, it was political expediency to get the deal across the line, which they now... Frost and all the others are trying to renege on the very deal that they negotiated. But they they better get on and renege on it because otherwise we are going to leave the we are going to lose and the have union. And war with the EU. Well, so be it. If if we need the courage. To, in order to you protect our that, country. With, with the cost of living crisis and inflation where it is? Right well, well, what are the EU... Do you fear the EU so much that you would partition off 1.8 million people? Of course I wouldn't. But the point is, the DUP didn't have to get obsessed with this issue in the election. No, but it, Boris Johnson needs to get ups, uh, obsessed with it. Well, he's not going to do... Lord Frost speech. needs to cease... I'm going to say this because Lord Frost gets a lot of airtime on GB News. Lord Frost needs to cease distancing himself from that agreement. He needs to fess up to what he's done. So does Boris Johnson. And the first first uh, uh, declaration that a drunkard has to make in order to get over alcoholism is to understand that they are alcoholic. And Boris Johnson, Lord Frost, Liz Truss, all these people need to get off their backsides, recognise that they're threatening the union of the United Kingdom and do something positive about it. Well, Ben Habib, I say get yourself off that fence because it must be uncomfortable <laughs> on there. Uh, Lizzie says, Michelle, Ben mm. Habib is fantastic in his defence of the United Kingdom. We need more of it. My panel, a reminder as to who's who, businessman and former MEP Ben Habib, columnist at The Article and the founder of the Contrarian Prize, Ali Mirage, and Jeevan Sander, the economist at King's College London. Our uh, conversation debate continued, so it did, through the break, uh, about the whole kind of situation in Ireland. I've got to tell you, though, Ben Habib, there are so many people. I think my last seven or eight or nine emails uh, are all about Ben. You're all, everyone's saying that they love you. <laughs> Kate says, absolutely fantastic. You should be the Prime Minister. Reg says, oh, yeah. uh, Ben Habib <laughs> speaks for every right-thinking Britain. We need him in Parliament. And then he puts it in capitals. Get elected. There you go. I don't know what that says about you, Ali. Well, he was... Doesn't does anyone think that he was talking <laughs> sense? Well, exactly. No, ben was elected, and, and ben, the good thing... Look, Ben and I disagree on this particular issue, but I do have a lot of respect for Ben, because 
He's a businessman with credibility and experience, and po politics needs more people like them. Well, yeah. you know and people like you too, Ali. Thank you. Do you yeah. know what I've got a lot of respect <laughs> for? Um, respectful disagreement. Because in our society, we just don't have enough people that are able to have different opinions and still get along. There's way too many people uh, that practically hate each other just because they think differently on issues. I find it very, very bizarre. Anyway, uh, one of the main issues on the doorstep, of course, we've just had the elections, is the cost of living crisis yesterday. Interest rates hit a 13-year high and inflation is now running at about 7%. For those of you old enough to remember, of course not me, uh, this is all starting to feel a little bit like a return to the 1970s. Before we get into this debate, by the way, because sometimes on TV I think uh, many people are just guilty of assuming that everyone knows what everything means. So, just a little uh, school lesson, in case you're interested. Uh, recession, well, what is it? Firstly, GDP, gross domestic products, is a measure of the health of a country's economy, the size of it and how much it grows. Uh, when we talk about recession, then, what we mean is when GDP doesn't grow or it shrinks for two consecutive quarters, which is, of course, six months. So what do we think there? Now we're heading for a deep recession, Jeevan? So in terms of, like, whether it's technically a recession or not is, like, kind of less important than what will happen to family incomes, irrespective of, like, whether it's minus 0.1% for six months. The real question is what will happen to there and there... Families face their largest fallen incomes for over 50 years. Mm. And the average family see a fallen income of over £2,000. This is a once-in-a-lifetime crisis. The Treasury and the Bank of England should both be meeting this moment. The Bank of England to get on top of inflation. They haven't acted fast enough. They didn't know it higher. Do you mean rates. you mean higher rates? They should have gone rate by rise. higher interest rates and also wound really? down quantitative easing. Yeah. To, to what level then would you have gone to? They went to one. What would you have gone to? One point two five percent. They have to be more aggressive. Every single time the Bank of England has put out a forecast, they've been behind the curve. They thought inflation was going to peak at seven percent. Back in February, they now think it's over 10%. Every single time they get a forecast in, they're on the wrong side of it. I'm going to just show you whilst we're talking uh, about interest rates, by the way. I think I've got a graphic somewhere for those of you watching, not listening. You know, you can see, if you can, you know, if you... If you've got better eyesight than me, quite frankly, uh, you can see basically that you know where we are right now. We talk a lot about interest rates going up and up and up, but they're not really. I mean, look at the graph; they're really quite low. We're talking now one percent. You're talking about big rises of one point two five percent. Get us to that level, but many people are emailing me saying overnight. Uh, previously, people's mortgages essentially just went doubled, if not more. And when you say, by the way, just by uh, I yield to the others, when you say kind of raise interest rates higher, don't you worry then about people's mortgages? Because that is on the main a lot of people's uh, expenditure. Many people in recent years have massively over leveraged themselves with their borrowing. Don't you worry about them? Of course, as well as, of course, borrowers who will also face the same problem. We know that lots of people in this country are struggling. Financially, it was one in five. I'm expecting that number to be higher today. Certainly so. That's the reason on the other side, the Treasury to act to put more money into families' pockets. But the Bank of England does have a job, and that job is to get on top of inflation. And as we're seeing these rising prices impacting us all, and also, finally, the headline rate at 10%, but a lot of that, energy, and now we think food as well. Who spends more money on energy and food? The most poorest, most vulnerable people in our society. Their price rise would like to be higher. And by the way, when we talk about interest rates, uh, one of the things I always found fascinating was 
Um, the announcement about the rates was only uh, concluded yesterday. Already today, I've got a text from my bank saying, uh, just to let you know, you might have seen in the press, interest rates going up, this will affect your mortgage. Fascinatingly, though, they're not so quick, are they, to text us about how it might affect our savings uh, accounts. <laughs> Get this, 36.5 million adults in the UK have a savings account. That uh, compares to 11 million outstanding mortgages. Anyway, uh, Ali, your thoughts on all this? Well, you know, I, I'm slightly confused. I, I agree with uh, Jeevan that um, a, a lot of people think that the Bank of England could have acted more aggressively, and indeed the Fed in the US did act more aggressively. Um, the, the thing I find confusing about this is that traditionally economists will tell you you've got to raise interest rates to curb inflation, but you've got a, a situation right now where a lot of this inflation has been caused by factors that are outside the immediate control of the UK. We're talking about rising energy prices, mm. we're talking about COVID recovery, we're talking about international supply chains that are sort of coming back to life. And now you've got the uh, increasing lockdowns in China. That's yeah. another event that could uh, happen, inflation in the US. So a lot of this is happening outside our control. So I'm not wholly convinced exactly, even if we raise interest rates to 4 or 5% exactly, if this is going to dampen down this inflation, which is not going to be transitory, it's going to be potentially lasting quite a long time. Yeah, so. and you say, you say about China, by the way, sorry, Jim, and you say about China, but we've already seen companies such as Apple that are already saying, actually, that what's going on with the supply chains, etc., in China, it is already impacting yeah. them. And it's going to go uh, much worse in the whole China, because, as we can see, those guys are not letting up on their zero COVID strategy anytime soon. Jim, did you just quickly want to come back? Yeah, so if there was just, like, a transitory rise in prices, the price would, like, just go up by, let's say, 10% and then stop. The real problem is that, actually, we've got a huge amount, like the price of money is low and unemployment's very low. So what happens is it starts to feed through into kind of wage contracts. Now, those price rises start to become embedded. So you're right, there are these temporary factors. And if it was just the fact that, like, we had these supply chain disruptions, etc., actually, we wouldn't be raising interest rates. The problem on the other side is, is because unemployment is so low and interest rates are so low as well. It's like a, a well, The Bank of England is projecting that will also increase, right? They're saying 5.5% next year. They're talking about... They're predicting... I mean, they're saying that they're... The press is saying it's predicting a recession. It's not quite predicting a recession, but they do predict that next year uh, GDP growth is going to be a negative 0.25%. So this is not a happy situation. It's a perfect storm. There are no easy answers here, unfortunately, for anyone. Yeah, but the one thing we shouldn't be doing is raising interest rates, actually. Um, looking, uh, I believe firmly in looking at everything at in first principles, and even though we have got inflation, this is entirely supply-side inflation. We haven't got the second-round effects of wages going up and demand-side inflation coming in to, to exacerbate the problem. And interest rates going up really principally only controls demand-side inflation, not supply-side. And this supply-side inflation, I also think, believe it or not, this is going to be a bit optimistic, um, I think this is going to come under control by October, November, largely come under control. And the reason I say that is that the underlying reason for this massive spike in inflation is rising fuel prices, gas and oil. And we're having two or three effects at the moment. The first is that nations globally are pumping and, uh, and extracting as much fossil fuel as they possibly can. Um, we came out of lockdowns with reserves of fossil fuels extremely low, governments extremely unprepared for what was going to happen to demand. And actually now, you can see, if you read the latest IEA, uh, IEA reports on gas as well as oil, reserves for gas are building up. We're going into warm months where reserves actually by October, a forecast to be pretty much back to pre-lockdown levels. 
They're forecasting that gas prices are going to drop by about 30% by October. Oil prices have already dropped by 30%, and they're likely to drop further. The real issue for me is not really the supply side effects uh, th that are causing this inflation. The real issue for me, I think, is that we're not going to see much demand side coming in to sustain economies. So I think that even though we may not technically have a recession yet, the world feels very recessionary. And so I think central banks have to be very, very you careful. You say a lot about the supply side, but one of the reasons that we're in this situation is because pretty much globally we all opened up at the same time. Yeah. And that led to a huge demand pull. No, we, we weren't. Like no, we weren't. The supply chains were broken. And we had uh, we had inadequate reserves of fossil fuels. So what happened was a smaller increase in demand caused a complete catastrophe. Um, you know, you, you'll recall, Michelle, ships couldn't dock. Um, container ships were all in the wrong place. Containers couldn't be offloaded fast enough. So we couldn't get the machine working in unison. You know, the global economy is a very finely balanced ecosystem as is the supply and demand for oil. I'll come back to oil in a second. But the global economy is a very finely balanced ecosystem. When you do something as dramatic as lock down the world for nearly two years, you are doing something outrageous from an economic perspective. Mm -hmm. And we're beginning to see the effects of that. But let me just talk about oil for one second, then I'll shut up. Um, before the lockdowns, the world was consuming about 99 million, uh, 99 million barrels of oil a day. During lockdowns, that fell to about 88 uh, million barrels a day, so it dropped by about 10 percent. The oil price went to negative territory. I know. And, I remember that. And when we opened up, oil demand went pretty much straight back to 99 million barrels a day, and, 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 and it took a while for the, OE, uh, for the OPEC countries and for the US and so on to, to, to start pumping oil. We are now pretty much back to 99 million barrels a day being pumped out of the ground. So we will see inflation uh, uh, of fossil fuels diminish in October. Then it will take a while for that to feed through. That doesn't address the broken supply chains. But this problem of in hyper, this sort of hype, hike in inflation, I think is going to dissipate pretty much by October, November. We're going to be sitting here looking at a recessionary environment and wondering why the hell the Fed and the Bank of England raised interest rates going into a recessionary environment. I will say we're going to go into October, November. We'll see what will happen. It's certainly true that supply-side disruptions happen, but look, this is very much also a demand-side story. Look, the United States, their inflation is higher. Yes. They have a larger stimulus and a lower unemployment. If you plot together and you look at nations that kind of spent more money against the unemployment rate, you see that their inflation rates are higher. If it was just a supply-side, we shouldn't see those kind of relationships. We're also seeing nominal wages in the UK increase. As people have bargaining power, Rightly, when they start to... But we will get second-round effects. And this, this yeah. second-round effects, which you're trying to avoid to happen. That's why interest yeah. rates have but to you, go But you, you won't avoid the second-round effects by second putting interest rates yeah, up. second-round rates will start to bring in that demand, but which you have to do. All, all you're going to do is exacerbate the cost of living problems by raising interest rates. That's a bizarre thing to say, though, isn't it, really? Because why? what you're saying is you're putting up the cost of living, you're putting up prices, but also demand is going to have no effect. Like... There clearly is going to be a demand effect. But how, how are going to get more expensive? How will you? And therefore, on the other yeah. side of it, people are going to start to spend less, yeah. unfortunately. And on the other side, yes, there will be a kind of a reduction in growth. But that's the reason we have to get inflation under control. I agree with you. You have to deal with both things at the same time. And it's unfortunate that we're here. And we are here in one sense because 
you know, unfortunately, central banks haven't really been fast enough to deal with this problem. Well, I tell you, I love my conversations with you three. <laughs> I always say when you come on, don't you, and I never want to offend any other panellists in case uh, any of the other panels are watching, but I love you three. You are uh, one of my favourite <laughs> panels. I could talk to you all day. Now, seeing as it's Friday, I want to do something a little bit fun. So I ask you, do you know your cultural icons? More importantly, though, do you even care about this kind of stuff? We're going to be finding out if the panel know the Marilyns from the Kardashians. I've got to be honest, though, um, I'd pretty much get them all wrong, so I had a partaking test. Um, anyway, are you still suffering from the COVID-15? I'm not talking about the illness, of course, but the amount of weight that people gained in lockdown. Uh, if you are and you want to shift the pounds, an analysis of more than 10 trials show that sticking to a vegan diet for three months will give you significant weight loss. By the way, though, I think all, of, all the time, every day, it's a different diet. So let me just make it very brief, because I want to ask you about cultural people as well. Ben, Habib, did you put loads of weight on? Would you go vegan to try and shift it? I'm going to be looking at all your waistlines now, <laughs> by the way. So make sure you're all breathing in, chaps, yeah? Yeah, funny enough, I did put on some weight during lockdown, which I have had difficulty shifting, but I'm quite a light guy uh, anyway, so it's not a huge issue. Um, as I get older... Slimmer than me! Oh, you're slimmer than me! I know, I did put on some weight. I'd been the same weight from 18 to 50-whatever I was, and, um, and now I've put on a few kilograms, but there you go. Um, uh, so would I've lost go, my train of thought vegan? now. I know. <laughs> would I go vegan? Random Friday chat. <laughs> would you go vegan? I'm increasingly drawn to veggie as I get older. Less interested in red meat, really quite off red meat. Tolerate chicken, love fish. And I used to be the other way when I was younger. So I'm not really the best person to ask, but clearly vegan's good for you. Um, having said that, I certainly would not micromanage people's eating habits. It's for government and for regulatory bodies and health authorities to put out the information, and then it's for us to make our minds up as to, you know, how we wish to eat. Mm, indeed. Uh, Jeevan, your thoughts? Uh, yeah, pretty much the same, really. Uh, I eat a lot less meat than I used to. It's good for us, it's good for the planet. Uh, and on the other side of it, I mean, if it does help you lose weight, great. But I also agree with you, Michelle, like, there is always a new diet. I don't think there's anything particularly kind of uh, virtuous about going vegan as opposed to any other diet out there. Yeah, Ali, see, I don't even buy into all this nonsense, because to me it's just not difficult. If you want to lose weight, eat less and move more. That's, that's right, uh, and, and I wish I had uh, taken your advice, uh, Michelle. <laughs> well, I'm available uh, for expensive personal training, <laughs> <laughs> if you want. Look, I, I, my, my weakness is, uh, is pan au chocolat from Lidl, the fresh section at Lidl every weekend. And I always say to myself, I'm going to stop buying it this weekend, but I always do. Uh, one's got to have some guilty pleasures in life. Look, I do think um, I have been eating a bit more vegetarian stuff, to be honest. Uh, still eating a little bit too much. Uh, red meat, which I'm trying to cut down, because it is better for the planet and also for health. Mm. Um, and I think, look, good luck to the vegans. 11 Madison um, Park in New York, one of the best uh, restaurants in the world, three Michelin stars, David Hum, runs it, uh, went totally vegan last year. It was a radical departure, and, you know, he's uh, at the top of his profession, and he thinks it's uh, making a statement for his restaurant, which entertains, like, the, you know, the most, uh, well, the richest uh, people in New York, so... Well, Bruce has emailed in saying, Really, Michelle? Uh, you have got a, a panel of knowledgeable people discussing issues that actually matter to us, and you want to talk about Marilyn Monroe and icons and wit. Yeah, I do, actually, Bruce. Guess what? It's Friday, and if I can't spend ten minutes having a bit of fun at the end of my show, what can you do here? Eh? Uh, the reason I'm asking about cultural icons, by the way, is because uh, it's been reported today that the young'uns, 18 to 30-year-olds, they don't really know uh, who's who. So, very brief uh, quiz to end my show. Let's see whether or not you guys know... 
Right, who's this? Oh no, this is ridiculous because I'm putting pictures up on the screen. <laughs> I've ruined it. It's ruined. Uh, firstly, I don't know where the pictures are, and secondly, I've just scrolled so the panel see. We've the got the answers. Uh. You've got the answers. I'm going to put the. Uh, let's just very quickly see if I can get the pictures up. You at home can guess who they are. Let's do it. We've got pictures. No. My cultural hilarious quiz is uh, failing on its face. So I'll tell you what, I'll show you uh, a real-life cultural icon, shall we? Someone that's very important, that's shaped reality TV as we know it. You're looking at her. Winner. First female winner, I'll have you know, of series two of The Apprentice. I, Don't get much more of a I cultural still, icon than that, yeah. No, well, I still remember it. that, Michelle. Just, just on Marilyn Monroe, though, I was watching uh, The Mystery of Marilyn Monroe on Netflix last week. And I tell you, it is fascinating because it really has the, um, the sort of uncovered tapes that haven't been heard before. Anthony Summers, this investigative journalist, gone into great detail. You're talking here about a person who was a film icon, right? She had had a really troubled childhood, 10 foster homes, went to an orphanage, was top of her profession, was an icon. And then you've got Kim Kardashian turning up at the main. <laughs> I, I don't even know what Kim Kardashian's famous for, apart from some tape that was released a few years ago, which then propelled it. I, I really honestly don't know. And I think, look, if you put up some pictures, I probably won't know half the people, so I can't comment. All I'll say is that we're in a situation, I feel, too much now, where people want to be famous for the sake of being famous uh, without, you know, really striving. Look, I'm named after Muhammad Ali, the boxer. Genuinely, I am. The day after his Rumble in the Jungle fight. So well, I do think we should know about these icons. The most fascinating part of that story that you just told was the fact that you spend your evenings watching documentaries about uh, Marilyn Monroe, right? So on that on that note... <laughs> That's what he calls better, them. That's finish, what he calls them. Yeah, I better finish the show. This, he's, he's probably got uh, another Marilyn video to watch. I'll leave you to it. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your company. Thank you at home as well for yours. Uh, have a good weekend. Try not to watch too much Marilyn. And I'll see you... Or tractors, actually. Try not to watch too many tractors either. I'll see you on Monday. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.